Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey, would you like to know more about what Kentucky scientists are up to lately? Well, here's your chance. Today we're going to continue reporting about the annual conference of the Kentucky Academy of Science, and that took place back in November 2020. We've already broadcast one of the keynote speakers from that conference. It was Dr. Stephen Stack of the Kentucky Department of Public Health. He spoke about COVID-19. And you can check out our episodes of November 23rd and 30th of 2020 to hear that. And it's on our website at forwardradio.org. Well, today we're going to resume our report on the KAS conference, but this time you'll be hearing from undergraduate students. Every year, KAS holds a friendly student research competition as a way of encouraging excellence among the speakers and as a way of recognizing students who have really gone that extra mile on their research projects. We're lucky enough to have interviews with two of the award winners from the 2020 conference. This week, we'll be hearing from Erin Carlton of Northern Kentucky University. She'll be talking about the root buttresses that trees in Kentucky can form. And then Samuel Kessler of the University of Louisville will speak about a novel sampling method for monitoring fecal contamination in Louisville's streams. These interviews were conducted by Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Thank you so much, Amanda. These two interviews will be followed by a commentary by longtime Bench Talk team member J. Scott Miller. He'll be talking about rising sea levels due to climate change. But first... Aaron Carlton of Northern Kentucky University. Hello, this is Amanda Fuller. I'm with the Kentucky Academy of Science. We're doing a series for Bench Talk of interviews with our student competition winners from our KAS annual meeting this past November 2020. And today I have with me Erin Carlton. She's a student at Northern Kentucky University and she presented in the ecology section. She was one of our student winners for her research entitled, Determining Factors of Why Some Trees in Temperate Zones Buttress Their Roots. Erin, welcome. Hi Amanda, glad to be here today. Can I have you start out by just telling us a little bit about your research? All right. What buttress roots are, are just a triangle formation of roots that are above ground, and they're incredibly common in tropical rainforests and tropical areas. These roots aren't super well studied, mostly because they're kind of just hard to work around, and a lot of times in tropical rainforests, they're very massive. But the reason they're growing is expected to be that they sprawl out to find nutrients because rainforests have very nutrient poor soils and also give the plant extra support. So in temperate zones, like what we have here in the Midwest of America, 
There are still temperate buttress trees with buttress roots, but the reason they are growing here is not really well known at all. The reason I question it is because they don't have any need for extra support. We have very nutrient rich soils here. So that's what my research question was, was just kind of looking at some characteristics these buttress trees share, trying to figure out what possibly might make them buttress if I were to do any future research. So where did you go? Where did you do this research? I went to four local areas in the Cincinnati Tri-State. I went to the NKU Field Station, which is also called REFS. And I also went to three of the great parks of Hamilton County. I went to Otto Armletter Memorial Park, Woodland Mound Park, and Miami Whitewater Park. And these were all spaced out in the Cincinnati region. So tell us a little bit, when you were stalking the trees in the park, <laughs> what were you looking for? And what were some of the patterns that you saw as you started to make your observations? So when finding buttress roots, First, I want to say buttress roots in temperate zones are much, much smaller than in tropical rainforests, just like the trees here are smaller than in tropical rainforests. So when I was walking around these forests, I was looking for a root that was above ground, and it also went up the tree a little bit. So in all in all, it was kind of like a triangular shape. And the way I measured it was I wanted to measure the longest buttress and the shortest buttress just to get some averages. I measured the length of the buttresses, the height, and I also wrapped the tape around it and did like the half circumference slash the girth of it. When I wanted to this research, I was expecting that all the trees in the area, if one was buttressing, they were all buttressing. That did not happen. So there was only a couple spots where that was actually accurate and mostly because it was just the same kind of tree in the area. Some random patterns that I found were a lot of oaks buttress and a lot of maples buttress, but those are also incredibly common trees around here. Also, something interesting I found was just because one tree is buttressing in an area doesn't mean the same tree of that same species is going to buttress in that area as well. And that seems sort of surprising because you absolutely it would be dictated by some environmental influence. Yeah, absolutely. And since, you know, the same species shares the same genes. I thought, you know, if one's doing it, why not all of them in that area? But that did not happen. So it must be something very specific environmentally. Right. And so you tried to figure out some of the correlations. Again, we, you know, not to know necessarily causation, but you were looking to see if you could correlate this with anything in the tree's environment. So did you find any correlations there? So I measured a lot of things besides just the buttress characteristics. I also measured, you know, the tree species. I researched if that tree species was native. Well, if they are native, yes or no. But also if they were, if they had relatives in the tropics currently in their genus or in their family, which by the way, all of them did. So no one's completely a stranger from the tropics. I also measured soil moisture. I measured this a couple times and I measured soil carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus content. Out of all of these measurements, I think soil carbon was the highest and it was definitely like abnormally high in some places, but this makes a lot of sense because a lot of these trees that I saw and I measured that had buttresses had a very, very thick organic layer on the top of the soil. And I measured this during summer, so there weren't a whole lot of leaves falling on the ground because it was fall. It was just a very thick of organic layer of leaves, wood, debris, mulch, whole bunch of stuff. 
Okay. This is really just making me think differently when I go out for a walk, I'm going to look at trees a whole, <laughs> whole new way now. You described for me one particular tree that you saw when we were talking about soil carbon before, before the show here. I wish we had a photo of this tree, but since this is radio, I wonder if you could give us a colorful description of this tree that you remember so well. Okay. So this was a weird honey locust and honey locusts aren't super common around here, but they're around here. This tree was just weird looking. This tree was, first of all, it was like a darker red than normal honey locusts. It was massive. The diameter was like over a meter and a half because the buttresses were so huge on this. And this was incredibly abnormal to me. This is also the only honey locust I saw that had buttresses. Their buttresses were so large that some of them had holes in them. And some of them also like formed a basket together. So there was actually like a nest in one. And this was like at ground level as well. And all honey locusts have spikes. This one had spikes in different locations, like on the roots as well. And also about this honey locust, the soil around it had like sawdust on it. And this was in the middle of the woods. And it was like sawdust that was the same color as the tree. And I was like, is there a beaver eating this tree actively? It was so weird. I really should have recorded it. It was just massive. It was weird looking. It was also growing completely like, not like sideways, but it had like a, an upside down J shape to it. And it just made no sense to me. I was like, this tree is wacky. There's so many simple pleasures and joys of doing field ecology. So I'm glad you're enjoying that aspect of the work. I'm glad you've gotten to enjoy some of the, some of the time outside making these observations. Yeah, I had a great time in the field, except the one day with the mosquitoes in the swamp. But right. other than that, I had a great time. <laughs> right. Well, Erin, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. And good luck to you in your future endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Aaron Carlton for that interview. Now, Samuel Kessler of University of Louisville. He won an undergraduate research award for his talk in the environmental science section at the conference. The title of his talk was Advancement in Cumulative Sampling Methods for Fecal Contamination Profiling and Success Monitoring in Streams. Hi, this is Amanda Fuller. I'm with the Kentucky Academy of Science. So I'm here today with Sam Kessler from the University of Louisville. Hi, Sam. Hello. Sam studied some new water sampling methods, which sound really promising and exciting. Thanks for joining us on Bench Talk. I'm excited to hear about your research. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your project? Sure. Our project was close to home. It was in Mill Creek in southwest Louisville. It's a suburban stream that had previously seen high levels of fecal contamination. And so our team was a group of students and some faculty in a research institute. And we started out with a very low budget and we knew we wanted to do something positive for that part of the community in doing a study. Our goal was to profile the contamination in the area and see what future stream restoration efforts might do to improve it. But of course, the problem with doing that on a low budget is you will either run out of money to do grab sampling, which is the most promoted method where you have to go in the field and take a sample, run back to the lab, analyze it, and then repeat that about 30 times if you want accurate statistics. 
or we would run out of time for the students to be able to manage that with their classes, really. And so the solution was, well, if we could come up with some kind of cumulative sample that was low cost, it would solve both of those problems. And it would also help us to actually see on a cumulative basis, what would the change be after a stream restoration? And the idea there is that with grab samples, in between the samples, you're missing all of the contamination that could be happening. But with the cumulative sample, you're filling in that gap. So the cumulative sampling is a really interesting idea. It sounds like you were somewhat intrigued or inspired by some earlier research that was using sediment bags to collect E. coli in waterways. So how did your ideas evolve and how did you adapt that? Right. There's a very limited field of study with this low-cost cumulative sampling, which the reason it's low-cost is because of the use of sediment. So the first studies were using sediment bags on a beach, and they were wanting to figure out which river system in the local area was contributing E. coli to the beach and which was the worst contributor. And so it wasn't always the one that had peak contamination. It was one of the ones that had kind of a, a more median level over time, and that built up in the system. And so that research was taken by the U.S. Geologic Survey in 2005, and they developed more methods. And then after that point, it was never studied again. And so what we know from that past work is that there were some issues with the method working in low flow or in high flow, your, your sediment would be washed out of the bag. And so there were some design changes we knew that we would need to make for that. And so we designed a device which has a basically a PVC shroud. And inside of that shroud, there are two sets of very fine mesh nylon bags. And then inside of those bags, we used a sediment called diatomaceous earth, which is made from the diatoms that were here millions of years ago that settled on the ocean floor and built up. And the cool thing about diatomaceous earth is that each of the particles has a pore. And so it's different than normal sediment because we could take advantage of both. Okay, well, in between sediment particles, we'll absorb water and we'll absorb E. coli, but also within each of the particles, there's pressure that happens when you place a device in the water that also helps with that absorption. So that effectively meant that this could maybe work in low flow and then the shroud would protect it from higher flow. And you have a great illustration in your presentation that shows the device itself, but it also shows a close-up of how much surface area there is in that diatomaceous earth. And so if folks want to see this, we're at the Kentucky Academy of Science online program, which is at kyscience.org. All the presentations are there and you can click on Sam Kessler's presentation and you can see these pictures of the sampler device and the diatomaceous earth. What did you find when you were comparing the, the results from your sampling and some of the grab bag sampling? What did you find when you actually went in and were crunching your data? So that, that was the interesting part. And the first thing we had to consider is for the study was how do we make the comparison between those two because it's kind of like apples and oranges comparing a cumulative to a grab sample. And so we decided that we would compare the averages of grab samples and geometric means, which in Kentucky, the, the statute for surface recreation 
is five samples in a 30-day period, and then you take the geometric mean of that. And so we compared both, and we had, we had one one-week study, a two-week study, and then a one-month study. And then in terms of our sampling, we were doing at least four samples a week. So we had much more than five samples, much more than 30 samples. I think the total was 120-something. And so when we made the comparison, because we were grab sampling so frequently, we started to see that the trends in the averages were actually very similar to the trends in the cumulative sample. And when we ran our statistic analysis, which we used the Spearman test to compare uh, between the two, we found that specifically that the highest correlation was on our study stream, Mill Creek. It was at 0.86, which was very strong. And as it would happen previously, there had not been any observed correlation in past research with sediment-based samples, which some people had taken those from the stream bed with the same thinking. So what is the future of this technology? It sounds like it could really change the way people do water sampling. What do you think is the potential for this? We hope to continue to promote this device to develop new standards for recreation contact on a cumulative basis. And the, the benefit to that is there's more security in having a standard that's based on collecting data over time, as opposed to collecting data just at different periods of time. And in general, I think that's something that the public should be interested in, in terms of how under our public health standards, are we analyzing whether or not water is safe for interaction? And so this is something that could hopefully improve the reliability of that. And also, when we're looking at stream restoration, it can be hard to tell, one, when has that restoration been successful, which a cumulative sample can help you do, which was our study, if you have the data before and after. But also, at what point do things like green infrastructure kind of become like a dirty sponge and contribute more E. coli and more nutrients through buildup back into the system? And when do you need to do kind of the sort of environmental maintenance and repair to these things to preserve your water quality? We think that this device can certainly do a better job of picking that up than grab sampling. Because in that case, you might not see spikes in E. coli. And by the time you're seeing those higher numbers, you could have probably done the environmental restoration maintenance quite a bit earlier before you actually get to the point where there's an issue. That sounds really interesting, and it sounds like it could be really helpful for folks who are regulators, for folks who are managing uh, natural areas, who are managing waterways, mm-hmm. and uh, it sounds really exciting. Thanks, Sam Kessler, for joining us on Bench Talk today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for sharing your research with us. Thank you for having me on. Thanks to Samuel Kessler for that interview. And now, Jay Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College will be providing us with a commentary about sea level rise due to global climate change. I have spoken on this topic before, but some topics simply bear repeating until things can be seen to be changing for the better. The topic is climate change, in particular coastal flooding. Living as we do here in the Kentuckiana area, apologies to those listening via the internet who live away from this area, we do not deal with tidal flooding. The flooding we often deal with is due to heavy rains, which can in some degree be attributed to changes in the climate. 
but that's another story. So when the topic of coastal flooding comes up, those in this area may be prone to turn a deaf ear. But here is the point. We are all Americans, and more importantly, humans. We survive by looking out for one another, not by going it alone. Sometimes politically one hears things like, it's not my problem, or it's my constitutional right to mess up the environment. Well, maybe not that extreme, but... But some of those folks are the first in line when things do not go their way, such as in the current pandemic. I don't see too many businesses saying, federal, state government, I don't need your help even though customers are staying away or cannot come to my place of business. I will make it alone. When the chips are personally down, help is asked for, sometimes demanded. And it is in this spirit that coastal flooding should be taken. I recently read an article in the NASA Global Climate Change News from December of this year entitled, Beating Back the Tides. In it, I found the current quotation telling, and I quote, On days with the highest tides of the year, whole parking lots and streets in Annapolis are underwater causing delays and traffic congestion. Compromise Street, a major road into town, is often forced to shut down, slowing response times for firefighters and other first responders. Local businesses have lost as much as $172,000 a year, or 1.4% of their annual revenue, due to high tide floods, according to a study published in 2019 in the journal Science Advances. High tide floods, also known as nuisance floods, sunny day floods, or recurrent tidal floods, occur when tides reach anywhere between 1.75 to 2 feet above the daily average high tide and start spilling onto streets or bubbling up from storm drains, according to an annual report on the subject by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. These floods are usually not related to storms. They typically occur during high tides and they impact people's lives. Because of rising sea driven by climate change, the frequency of this kind of flood has dramatically increased in recent years. Between 2000 and 2015, high tide flooding in the U.S. doubled from an average of three days per year to six along the Northeast Atlantic, according to a 2018 NOAA report. It is especially common along the East Coast and Gulf Coast, where the frequency is up by roughly 200% over the last two decades. End of quote. In another article in the same journal entitled NASA Watches Sea Level Rise from Space and Its Center's Windows, one can read, At Kennedy, there are parts of Launch Pad 39A, the site from which Apollo astronauts lifted off on their moonward journey, that are expected to start flooding periodically from 2020 onward instead of the occasional sporadic flooding events experienced in the past. The weather that precedes flooding would generally scrub a scheduled launch anyway, but the frequency and size of flooding events are expected to continue increasing over the next few decades and could eventually damage the existing structures. High tide flooding, also known as nuisance flooding, due to the inconvenience of associated road closures, is estimated to have tripled in frequency compared to 50 years ago. At Kennedy, approximately 1.5 miles of roadway need to be raised up to one foot to avoid degradation before the end of the decade. 
By 2059, that grows to 20 miles of roadway raised up to 2 feet, and near the end of the century, virtually all of its roadways will need work to remain above water. Now, I admit that neither of these locations are anywhere near Kentucky or Indiana, but I would argue that listeners with political leanings on both sides of the aisle can see issues here beyond themselves. Those that are considered progressive simply point to this as another issue brought about by the existential threat of climate change, and that it goes well beyond our shores to the shores of other countries, including island countries around the world. Those with more of a conservative leaning should be looking at the cost to business, those adversely affected in Annapolis and NASA and its various facilities around the country, especially those NASA centers and facilities that are located on coastal real estate because the shoreline is a safer, less inhabited surrounding if something goes wrong. The accepted rate of global sea level rise sounds deceptively small at 3.3 millimeters per year, just over one-tenth of an inch. But that rise is accelerating, going from about 0.1 inches or 2.5 millimeters per year in the 1990s to about 0.13 inches or 3.4 millimeters per year today. When combined with sinking lands and the increasing occurrence of natural disasters and storm surges, those millimeters add up to cause concern for many areas around the globe, including several NASA center locations. All told, all of NASA's buildings and grounds represent more than $32 billion in infrastructure. Unfortunately, all we hear from some on Capitol Hill, who will remain unnamed, is that this is all about jobs, and we must accept climate change and the detriment it is having on humans because to do otherwise would hurt jobs, especially jobs in the fossil fuel industry. This type of thinking is what has brought us to this point. Short-sighted, really, because with proper retraining, those that might otherwise experience job losses could be at the forefront of new job opportunities, such as those that could open up if wind, solar, and hydroelectric energy are further developed and deployed. Yes, there would be some downturn initially, just as has happened every time something new comes along. We do not rely on the Pony Express anymore, and its dismantling forced those involved to retool and look for new jobs. An extreme example, perhaps, but it makes the point. And that point is that humans looking out for humans can do lots of good things. Perhaps the answer is to support those in industries that might be adversely affected by a movement toward less reliance on fossil fuels, giving them the opportunity to get new skills while not having themselves or their families starving or losing their homes because they are momentarily out of work while retooling. We can turn our back on these problems because we do not see the immediate issue for ourselves, or we can act as the collective whole that we should be and make better things happen. Thanks, Professor Miller, and thanks again to Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science and to students Aaron Carlton and Samuel Kessler for telling us about what's going on in Kentucky science these days. And congratulations on your research award. We'll feature some other award-winning research students on this show soon. So stay tuned. Well, that's the show this week. 
Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.